right, well, this is, <laughs> this is the best news in the world, right? This is something, this is Easter Sunday in August that we've been saying, and this is something that we should be excited about. Not that you need to fake excitement, but that there should be a true joy if we truly believe that Jesus is risen. Because, yes, Christmas is great, but it's not enough that Jesus was born. Yes, Good Friday, as, as important as it is, and I'm with Malcolm, in the priority of the cross and the way of the cross as a way of thinking, but if Jesus is not raised, then this is all for naught, right? If Jesus is still in the tomb, then Jesus is a fraud, and our faith as, is useless, as Paul has told us. Like, if, this is, if there is no resurrection, then we've got nothing, like, this is everything for us. This is everything for the Christian. I mean, some of you guys may be here this morning and wondering, is any of this even real? Is all this, is it, is all this for naught? Is this all just a show? Is this just another charlatan trying to sell me something? Or is it real? Is God real? Is, is he even good? And sometimes it's really hard to believe that he's good when you've seen the darkness of the world and you, see, and you just feel sad all the time and you wonder, can anything make the sadness come untrue? That's where today's message comes, at the resurrection. And it's an exciting time here because this is this is the good news of the resurrection. And so my thesis for today is the resurrection is the unimaginable evidence of the miraculous. Unimaginable evidence of the miraculous. Right? This, this is what I believe to be true. And so first, unimaginable. In verse 1, we, it says early on the first day of the week, this is now what we as churches have adopted as the day that we are going to celebrate the first day of the week here. While it was still dark, and you can just imagine John, who's writing things, light is about to burst into the, into the dark, but not yet. Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. Now, I don't know if you caught that there. The stone has been removed. <laughs> that's a sermon right there. Like That's, that's something we want to shout for joy and say, Hallelujah! Amen, the stone has been removed, yes? Yes, amen, because we know what it means. We know what that means, but it's not a hallelujah yet. It, it's not for Mary. When Mary sees the stone removed, she is not shouting for joy. She's infuriated. Remember what Mary, what, what Mary has just gone through. Like, God is up to something. There's a boulder in front of a cave, and now it's not there anymore. And Mary, who is really the main character of John's account of the resurrection, sees this boulder removed, and she's broken by it. She sees the stone removed, and it crushes her. Mary wasn't coming to celebrate. She was coming to mourn because the state and the religious leaders flexed their collective muscles and just put someone who she loved dearly through the most humiliating, degrading, painful death that they knew how to execute in the crucifixion. She just watched someone she loves die. Some of you may have had 
that hardship already. Or you've watched someone die. Some of us have been able to, to watch it secondhand on social media. And just watching it infuriates you. And watching it traumatizes you. And for her, to someone she loves, to watch them die, she is probably still shaking with trauma. Right? And she's coming to the tomb and she sees the stone removed. And she's crushed by this. Because the biggest enemies in the day is have been attacking Jesus left and right. And the biggest enemies of the day, who, who were they? They were the religious leaders. Are they still the biggest enemies of the day of Jesus right now? I wonder. I wonder. But Mary, who's coming to the tomb, and it makes me think of the song uh, in Hamilton. I know, we reference it too much. But, but there's, a, there's a song in Hamilton called Unimaginable, and the lyrics are just tragic if you read them. Like says, there are moments that words don't reach. Like You could just pause there and just sit in the sadness. There is suffering too terrible to name. You hold your child as tight as you can, and you push away the unimaginable. And they're singing about losing their, their child. They're singing about losing someone they loved way too fast. And this is where Mary's at. She loved someone and it was taken from her, was robbed from her way too early in life. And so you can imagine how, how sad she is. And when she gets to the tomb and she sees it gone, then she runs to fetch Peter and John. In verse 2 it says, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we don't know where they've put him. And so you can feel the agony and the grief and, and the anger with Mary. Like she's thinking grave robbers have taken Jesus and she's just thinking, can't they just leave him alone? Why won't they leave someone I love alone? They stole the body, which wasn't uncommon in that day. So Mary has reason to think that it's not a huge leap. But think about this now. At this moment, before this time now, Peter and John weren't there at the tomb. None of the other disciples were at the tomb. And Mary was only going to the tomb to mourn. Which, if you think about this, we're realizing that to the disciples, a resurrection was unimaginable. They, they actually didn't think that would happen. In light of Jesus saying over and over and over again that I will die and on the third day I'll rise. He said that so often in his ministry. We just went through the Gospel of John. We've said it a lot that he says, I will die and I will rise again on the third day. The Son of Man shall be risen on the third day. He is saying that over and over and over. And when the time comes, no one's there because no one can believe that. It's, I think what we suffer here in, in, in our day is a disease called chronological snobbery. You guys know about this disease? We all have this, this disease, and it, what it is is that you believe that you're smart because you're new. <laughs> you hear that? You believe that you're smart because you're new. And so what that, what that comes out to mean is that because we live in 2022, we say, well, of course we don't believe in silly things like the resurrection, but people back then, they fell for everything. And, you're, and, and what this text is telling us is that's not the case. Like, but also, think about it this way. If we think that, if we do believe in chronological snobbery, like, we also think things like, like, they believed in the resurrection, we don't, because we don't, we, 
We're modern. We think of things rationally. We, we don't ever fall for things like the flat earth or like a deep state or a stolen election. Like, no, we, we don't ever fall for things like that, right? No, we think because we're new, we're so advanced, we are objective. Well, what happens in 100 years? What happens in 100 years? What will people think about us now, right? So... No, I, let's just see it for what it is. The people closest to Jesus did not believe the resurrection was possible. It was a shock to them. But now let's look at the evidence of what it actually is. And so Peter and John hear the news, and now they come running to the tomb. They come running to the tomb, uh, sprinting probably in anger that someone did steal. Some grave robber stole Jesus' body. But this point has been made so many other times. Um, but I think it's worth noting that in verse 4, uh, both were running, but the other disciple, which is, we assume is John, the author, outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And you just got to love <laughs> that the author of the book wanted to make sure you knew <laughs> how much faster he was <laughs> than Peter. <laughs> so that centuries later, we we're still talking about his speed <laughs> over Peter's speed because he got to the tomb so much faster, embarrassingly so, slow, uh, that he, he mentions it twice in our passage here. So it's really important for John to mention that not only is he the one that Jesus loved, the beloved disciple, <laughs> as well as the faster one. So there you go. Uh, we're, we're here for the petty. We love it. <laughs> All right. But so John gets to the tomb, and, he, and it says he gets to the tomb and he, and he looks in. And it's the, the Greek word's kind of a common, common word, blepo. He, just, he looks in. It's kind of a way to just observe and to notice things. Uh, but he stays out of the tomb because this area is kind of off limits. You can imagine that if it was in today, they'd have the, the red tape and things like that. But not Peter. <laughs> when, when Peter gets there, it, it says in verse 6, he's lumbering in. <laughs> and Simon Peter, coming along behind him, went straight to the tomb. <laughs> There's just no stopping this force. And he sees the strips of linen lying there. Now, that word for see is different than one that was just used for what John saw. The word that, that is used here is the verb thereo, which is where we get our, our, our word theorize. And so when you can see what's happening here, that, that Peter sees the strips of linen lying there, and he begins to theorize, to, to think about in a sustained way, like, so... I got, what's happening here? He's trying, to, he's trying to make sense of the scene here, that the stone is removed, there are strips of linen there, they're lying, and the text gives the impression that it's folded up in a nice, neat way, and he's starting to make these, okay, well, what's happened here? And, and he's trying to figure it out, and honestly, that's what history has been doing for the last couple centuries, like, we've been trying to theorize what happened to Jesus, because believe it or not, the tomb being empty is actually a very um, widely held belief by Christians and non-Christians alike. That's not the debatable thing. The, the, when, when Peter gets to the tomb and he sees that it's empty, that, that, is a very, um, that is a very common thought there. Not, obviously, not everyone believes in the resurrection. Uh, that is something that we are going to talk about. But most people, most historians, Christians and non-Christians alike, actually know and notify that there, there was a man named Jesus that lived during this time, that he was executed by the Romans, that he was buried, and that on the third day he went missing. These are facts that, that history affirms here. Now, how did the tomb get empty is the question that we need to answer. That's the question that we want to answer. 
But everything else so far, everyone's on the same page on. And there's really only three options to how the tomb got empty. Theory one, someone stole the body. And so who are the suspects? We can do a, uh, one of your favorite detective TV shows here. Suspect one, the Romans. But <laughs> this is like the, the worst suspect because <laughs> no one really thinks the Romans stole the body, but it's an option um, because it, it makes no sense. The Romans just murdered Jesus. They just put a stone in front of it and they put guards to protect it. There's really no motivation for the Romans to, to go after Jesus in this way. Uh, suspect two is the religious leaders. Again, not as widely held one, uh, but maybe it was that they wanted to preempt the disciples stealing Jesus from the tomb. But if that were true, you would think that after news got out that Jesus wasn't there and the disciples are saying that he's resurrected, you think this would have been their trump card and said like, ah, here's the body, boom, you're idiots, right? So that, would, that doesn't seem like the best option. Suspect three is the disciples. And this is where a lot of people would assume that the disciples stole Jesus' body and are spreading this lie that he's been resurrected. Now, what's problems with this one? Um, well, there's the neatly folded linen cloths right there. Now, when, when you wrap a body in, in, its, in, its, in its grave clothes, it's like swaddling a body. And, and to get it out of there, there's gonna, it, they, also, they also put this, this goo <laughs> to, on there and things like that, that you almost have to tear it apart because it starts sticking to the skin for that to happen. So now it's just ni nicely, neatly laying there, and you begin to wonder what's happening there. Also, if his friends stole his body, why did they take him out naked? That's an odd thing. That's, that's something that your friends wouldn't do to dishonor you in this way. To steal the, the body of someone you love and let's take him out naked out of the tomb, that doesn't seem to be the case. You know, some other people think about what if it, what, what if it was grave robbers, but then again, it doesn't make sense because the grave robbers would have left all the spices. That doesn't make sense. Why are they robbing the grave in the first place? These are things they would have taken to, to make some money. And so all of these things make you start to wonder, like, just like Peter in theorizing, how does this come together? And so that kind of leads us um, to something big is happening here. Jesus isn't here. How do I make sense of this? And that's what I want you to think about this morning is something big happened at this time in this history. How do I make sense of it? Do I actually believe this stuff? Because think about who the disciples were prior to his resurrection and who they were after the resurrection. Like prior to his resurrection, yes, they were with Jesus and they were, they were you know, with him doing miracles and things like this. But right, before, right at this, the last part of his life, they all go running away. And Peter himself denies Jesus three times, right? If, if that's who they were, just the, these people living in fear, cowering to the state and to the religious leaders, what changes now about them? Because something happens here. They're scared, they're doubting, but something changes the disciples. Something makes them have a, a new ounce of hope and fearlessness. There's a Catholic Japanese author, Shushako Endo, and he says this, if you don't believe in the resurrection, you will be forced to believe that something hit the disciples that was every bit as amazing, maybe different, yet of equal force in its electrifying intensity. For if we try to explain the changed lives of the early Christians, you will find yourself making leaps of faith as great as if you had believed in the resurrection to start with. <laughs> Isn't that wild? Something wild happens to these disciples that changes who they were. If they were trying to convince people of this, this great lie, I mean, in a, in a religious hoax, you can see the goals of the leaders. 
because there's a huge benefit to them. You know, it's power, fame, money, sex, whatever it may be. There's a benefit to, to, to spreading this lie. But for the disciples, what benefit was it to them? Like every single one of them gets tortured and killed for their faith. According to Eusebius, Peter watches his wife get crucified, and then the next day he gets crucified upside down. What changed him to actually have that courage to not go running away like he did? What changed him to believe it so, so, so well here? This testimony is something that we have to think about. Because the disciples never gained money. They, whenever they had money, they gave it away. Like this is, this is, something's happening to the disciples here, this newfound power and belief. And so I don't think that's it. Theory two to the resurrection is that Jesus never really died which is also a, an interesting claim because the Romans were just experts at their craft. And what is their craft in this particular day? It's execution. They were experts at executing people, at crucifying people. They knew when someone was dead. But let's say Jesus somehow survived that crucifixion, survived the stab to his side, gets into the tomb, Let's say he survived all of that blood loss, because that's also not a normal thing, that that much beating that happens beforehand, he survives all of that blood loss, and now he's able to move the stone out by himself after all of that, and then he's able to, to fend off these guards that are in front of him. That doesn't seem like a, a likely uh, outcome here. And so really what we're left with is option three, that Jesus really did rise from the dead. That Jesus, this, this is what we're left with. And I want us to see, like, our faith. Like, see how logical and rational it is. Like, faith is more than thinking. It's trusting. It's feeling. Yes, it's love. But it's not less than thinking. I want us to be able to actually say, like, no, logically, in history, and factually, this really happened. It wasn't just a good idea. If it was just a good idea, then let's just go home. The, just the Easter, this, this hope, this resurrection idea. No, he really did rise from the dead. Because our faith is not just mystical, though it is. It's rational. And this passage would encourage you to take this, this initiative and to think hard about your faith. For you to look into the tomb and to theorize, does it, is this real? For you to take that ownership and say, let me look this up. Let me go online. We have this thing called Google. I don't know if you've heard. You can search so much now. It's wild. I've done it to, earlier today. right? <laughs> you can search so much information and find out for yourself, is this real? Is this rational? I encourage you to do that. And a lot of times I've talked to people who've tried to prove the faith wrong. When they do that, they end up coming to faith themselves. They're trying to prove it wrong, and then they find reasons to actually believe in it, and they're reluctant about <laughs> Didn't want to believe, but now I believe in this. And so this, is the, this resurrection is the unimaginable evidence of the miraculous. Let's talk about the miraculous here. What we're talking about is truly miraculous, okay? What, 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 we're, now we're coming to, to the, back to the main character in Mary. Oh, verse 11. Now Mary stood outside the tomb crying. She's crying while the, Peter and John are doing their thing. She's just standing outside. She's out there weeping and says, as she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb herself. Now she looks into the tomb. And when she looks, she sees two angels who are sitting where Jesus was laid. Now, anytime in history of the Bible, when a human being comes into contact with an angel, 
they usually fall down in fear. Angels are these, these other creatures. They're, they're, they're from, not from this earth. They're bright and shiny, and they, they have different features. And people, whenever they come in contact with angels, they fall down in fear. Or, as in John in, in, in the book of Revelation, they come and they fall down, and they just start worshiping the angels. And they're like, stop worshiping us. <laughs> We're not the person to worship. Not Mary. <laughs> she goes in, and she sees these two angels, and she's almost like oblivious to them. <laughs> she's, she's like, can you guys stop talking for a second? <laughs> she is laser-focused on Jesus which is just wonderful. She goes in and she's wanting to talk to Jesus. And so the angels are talking to her. They asked her in verse 13, woman, why are you crying? Which feels a little uncharitable. <laughs> like, read the room, angels. <laughs> she, in gracious way, says, they have taken my Lord away. And she said, I don't know where they have put him. And we're not told what, what happens here but, but maybe the angels look past her, and so she sees them looking past her or something like that. But then in verse 14, it says, At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there. But she did not realize that it was Jesus. And he asked her, Woman, why are you crying? Who is it you're looking for? And then in one of the, the greatest lines <laughs> in all of the Bible, one of the greatest examples of a mistaken identity, thinking he was the gardener. <laughs> can, you, can you get out of here, <laughs> the gardener? And she was wrong about that, right? But she was also right that Jesus was the new gardener. He's, he's creating something new. I think, I think she knows more than, than, than what we're giving her credit for here. Thinking he was the gardener, she said, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him, and I will get him. Now, what do you know about Mary? It's hard. There's seven Marys in the Gospels, and it's hard to keep them all straight. And so you're like, ah, she's the prostitute, right? Nope. <laughs> she's the one who, who, who was weeping and, and, and washed her, his, his feet with her hair. Nope, that's not the same Mary. No, this is, this is Mary Magdalene. Um, she's the Mary that's as, as recounted in Mark 5 as the one who had seven demons inside of her. Seven demons. Let's count that. One, two, three demons, four demons, five demons, six, seven demons. I don't know about you, but one demon seems like a lot. I've not experienced it. I hope to never do so. But one demon seems like way too much. If you have seven demons inside of you, like, and you're living today, like, you get, you don't have to pay mortgage. You, you're good. Student loan debt, for sure forgiven. You can go to the front of the line at all times. Like, oh, seven's here. Let her in. Like, <laughs> seven <laughs> demons. This is who she is. Like, you can see the loyalty she has to Jesus. He was able to, to, to cast out seven demons from her. And so you can imagine the love that she now has for Jesus, knowing the power that he has and the care he has for her. Right? And so she comes, she comes to Jesus. In this beautiful moment, and then Jesus says to her, look at verse 16. Jesus said to her, Mary, just Mary. When you have seven demons inside of you, they call you a demoniac. They, what, that, what that looks like is that you are running around half naked. You're hearing voices. You're crying out. You're a social outcast, and you're basically homeless. Everyone others those people. 
You don't even want to talk to them. Jesus casts out the demons, and now he has this personal relationship with Mary and just says, Mary. He's saying, I love you. He's saying, welcome me. Like Jesus is wildly intimate and personal with her here. And yes, the resurrection is based in facts, and we need to we need to look into those facts. But more than acknowledging with our heads, like I think we need to see how personal this is. Because he says Mary, and now Jesus is the walking fulfillment of John 10, 27, where Jesus says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. <laughs> Instantly, Mary, she follows him. She hears that voice. Like she, Verse 16 says, She turned to him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. And it does mean teacher. But when Jesus was on the cross and he says, Eli, Eli, Sabachthani, what is he saying there? He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because El is God, Eli is my God. And so Rabboni is teacher, but it's, it's my teacher. There's a personal nature there. It's my God. It is my Savior. And so is Jesus God to you? Or is, is, he your, is he your personal God? Like, is there, is there a relationship? Is he just a distant being? Or is he your savior? Like, do we know Jesus ourselves? Ah. <laughs> like, Jesus comes to Mary and doesn't say, hey, Miss Magdalene. <laughs> it's so distant and impersonal. He says, Mary. When, when God comes to you and says your personal name, do you have a personal name that only some people call you? I only have, everyone here pretty much knows me as Slim. Thank you. I like that. But my wife and my parents are the only people who call me Ryan. We have a, we have a personal relationship. If you call me Ryan, you, it's going to get weird. <laughs> We're not family, man. <laughs> Some of y'all do it. It makes me bad. Let's just stop that. <laughs> only my wife and my par- parents call me Ryan. My kids are the ones who call me dad. We have that personal name. And when Jesus comes to you and he has that personal name for you, do you see the intimacy the love he has for you. And he calls you out. And in that moment, everything sad comes untrue. That you know you are loved. That phrase that everything sad comes untrue comes from this book that we're going through with our kids in kids' church in the nursery, the Jesus Storybook Bible. There's a part at the end of it where it says, Look, God and his children are together again. No more running away or hiding. No more crying or being lonely or afraid, no more being sick or dying, because all those things are gone. Yes, they're gone forever. Everything sad has come untrue. <laughs> oh, I pray, I want that day to come so fast that God is, is reversing the curse, and he's breaking into this world at this resurrection. He's reversing the curse here. The resurrection means an end to sadness is coming. Like, that, that death isn't the final word. Christ has defeated death, and if he's defeated death, then he can't make all the sad things come untrue. Amen? Like, that doesn't mean that these bad and sad things never happened. We don't gloss over them, but now he's remaking them. He's repurposing these things. He's, He's bringing healing and hope amidst the pains and the struggles. Now, Jesus could have easily revealed himself to Peter and John in this time, right? Peter and John were there first, inside the tomb. Jesus could have revealed himself to them. Why didn't he? Why did he choose Mary to reveal himself to? You ever think about that? Peter's there. John's there. 
Why didn't Jesus just reveal himself to them? In fact, today this is one of the, the greatest evidences of the truth of Christianity, of who Jesus revealed himself to. Because in a very patriarchal society, women's testimonies weren't even admissible in court. And, and, and Celsus, a Greek philosopher, a pagan philosopher, who lived about 80 years after Jesus' death, actually cites this, this, this evidence right here as one of his greatest arguments against, against Christianity. He was one of the earliest opponents of Christianity. And his greatest argument is that this, one of the ways that we, can't, we know that the Christianity can't be true is because its accounts of resurrection are based on women. And in that day, the world said, oh, yeah. And his thought is, because, you know, women can't be believed. And everyone said, oh, yeah, that's right. So we can't believe in Christianity. We don't believe that. <laughs> Why did he know it was a strong argument at the time? Because in that day, they did not value women. And yet, for one brief moment, she was the entire church. And God gave this message to Mary. And ironically, this is now one of the strongest arguments for the resurrection. Because if you were making this story up, you wouldn't say it came from Mary. You would have given it to Peter. Your star witness is one who can't even give that testimony in court? No, no. The one person who witnessed the resurrection is now responsible to take it to the entire world. Jesus chose her. And, and let's be clear, in verse 17, Jesus says, Go instead to my brothers and tell them. A woman telling the brothers. Jesus commissions a woman right here to go preach the resurrection. Why shouldn't we? We will. We will. God is, is, is commissioning these women to give this unimaginable evidence of the miraculous. And if Jesus unleashes, unleashes women to preach, we will too. And so ultimately the message of the resurrection is that Jesus rises and we will too, right? Ultimately that is, that is, our, that is the main hope of the resurrection, that, that death has no hold on us. But I don't think that's the main message that, that, that John has given us right here in this moment. The news of the resurrection has a more present hope for us, not just for when we die. It's Christ is risen and now get to work is John's message right here. Christ is risen and now Mary, go. Tell the brothers about this, this risen work. He sends Mary to share the good news. We in, we in the church use that phrase, he is risen, and you respond with, he is risen indeed. So let's try that. He is risen. He is risen indeed. Now get to work, right? <laughs> that is what, that's the message of the resurrection here, of telling our neighbors of the miraculous, telling them of what God has done, loving our neighbors in such miraculous ways. But before you do that, I want you to see why this woman, not just why a woman, but why this woman because her faith is a miracle. Her faith is a miracle. She's the one who is the social outcast, has multiple demons, and she is, she is a walking miracle. And God chose her to carry this message of the resurrection to show that it is only by grace and grace alone that anyone is saved. Now, our salvation is no less a miracle than that. Do you believe that? Do you? When you look at other people, when you look at someone who looks so hardened, some of y'all look hardened, 
When you look at someone who is so, who is so stuck in their ways that no one could ever change their minds, do you actually look at them and say, they're not the type of person who would believe. I don't want to waste my time. Did, did you ever do that? Whenever you lose hope for anybody, then you don't know that your own faith is a miracle. Whenever you lose hope for anyone, you don't know that your own faith is a miracle. You're acting like there's normal people who believe and there are messed up people who can't believe. But if that were true, then why in the world do you believe? Why in the world do you believe? Were you, were you a great addition to God's team? Did God even need to die for you? Have you forgotten you're a miracle? See that this morning, that you are a walking miracle as you go out in the world. It's a miracle that I believe. I'll tell you my testimony another time. It's a miracle that I'm a Christian. My family will tell you it's a miracle that I'm a believer. When you've lost hope for anyone, you don't know your faith is a miracle. Because if you knew that your faith was impossible, then anything is possible for anyone else. Amen? The resurrection means tangible hope for anybody. First for you, and then for, for others. And so once you see God saved you, and you can say, Rabboni, my teacher, my savior, then you can look to the biggest lost cause that comes into your path, and you can have hope for them. Who is that for you this week? Who have you said there's no hope for them? Who are you tempted to doubt Jesus' resurrecting power for? That's who I want you to pray for this week. That's who I want you to give an encouraging word to this week and just build the relationship. Don't, don't give them a track. <laughs> just start a relationship. Because we should be the most hopeful people in the history of the universe. We're not naive because we know that we know our own sin. We realize how corrupt humanity is. And yet, we also know how powerful Christ's love is in making all the sad things come untrue. And so today, I want you to look into the tomb. Truly look, just like the disciples, like Mary, to investigate it. And then to make it your own. If you find this to be real, this should change everything. This is earth shattering. Is this real to you? Make it real. Find out, does this ring true? And does it ring true for me? And let's have that hope for anyone that comes in our path this week. Let me pray for us.